Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness here on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Welcome to the show, folks. This week I have a uh, very interesting, and I, I, I've i been actually looking forward to this for a little while now. Uh, this is an interview we are doing with a woman named Amber Scora, and she is a former Jehovah's Witness. Welcome to the show, Amber. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you for being on. And um, I actually became aware of you first through uh, Mormon stories and through John Delmin. And uh, and you spoke recently at the Thrive conference that he put on. Yes. And you have been a former Jehovah's Witness activist in the same way he's a former Mormon activist. I'm a former Scientologist activist. Why don't you tell my audience, who probably are not super familiar with you and your work, who yeah. are you? What is your background? You have written a book. You've been on The Daily Show. You spent a lot of time in China. I mean, you have some interesting background and in, in story here. So I think people are going to be really interested in this. So what's, what, are the, what are the broad strokes of your story? Well, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. I was third generation in Canada. And uh, after many years, I don't know how much your audience knows about Jehovah's Witnesses, but just a few elements. Um, first of all, Jehovah's Witnesses are apocalyptic. They think the world is ending any day now. And um, basically that kind of informs almost all of the worldview that they have and also the sort of ba- major um, tenets of the religion and basically the culture of the religion. Because if you think the world is ending, you know, they have certain rules about that you shouldn't go to college or that you sh- they strongly discourage you from developing any kind of career or if you have any talents, you should just put those aside because the main thrust of your life should be the preaching work. And that's why you see Jehovah's Witnesses almost everywhere you go preaching. So uh, after many years, I didn't go to college. Um, I didn't, I just sort of had a part-time job. And for many years, all through my 20s, I was what we called a pioneer, which is basically a preacher who spends most of their time preaching 70 hours a month um, and then works part-time to support themselves. But after doing this for a number of years in my home city of Vancouver, it, you know, it was I don't know. You guys know what you do when Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. Like you don't really <laughs> usually slam the door or say you're not interested. So it was, you know, it was tedious work, and it, you know, I spent a lot of time doing it. And so there were a number of uh, Chinese people in my territory because I had a university in my territory where I preached. And for some reason, well, I mean, for obvious reasons, like Chinese people would actually often study the Bible with us when we offered. For one thing, they are very hospitable by by culture, and they would have us in. But also a number of people who came to Canada and were studying at university welcomed the opportunity to have a friend from Canada and also an opportunity to practice their English. And so it was kind of a win-win situation in the sense that I felt like I had a Bible student and I got to go sit inside someone's house for a change and show them what I had to say. Uh, but also, my student improved their English. Now, over time, I started to get really interested in Chinese culture, and I wanted to learn Mandarin. 
And so I tried to start learning. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses have some Chinese congregations. Uh, but it was very, very uh, clear that in order to learn Mandarin, you'd have to be really fully immersed in the language because as an adult, trying to learn that language is very difficult. So I convinced my husband at the time to move to Taiwan so that we could improve our Mandarin. And then uh, after three years in Taiwan, which it took like three years of studying hard to get to the point where I could hold my own, I think, in Chinese, um, I then convinced my husband to moved to Shanghai, mainland China, to preach. Um, you must you know, have some amazing <laughs> salesmanship skills because I mean, that is a life change that few would contemplate. I mean, you're talking to a former Jehovah's Witness. Of <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, damn, <laughs> girl. Door-to-door salesman. <laughs> wow. wow. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, part of it was that, you know, when you're living this life that's kind of in a holding pattern, waiting for the real life, because Armageddon's going to come, and their belief is that after Armageddon, the earth will turn into a paradise with only Jehovah's Witnesses on it. Right. So, you know, you're, you're just sort of trying to, like, keep busy. And um, I think there was some latent thing in me, clearly, I mean, that liked adventure. I was interested in other cultures. You know, I, I think that as of Jehovah's Witness, the framework of your life is very limited. You know, your social circle is only Jehovah's Witnesses. You don't really, as I said, pursue your interests outside of that. And so going into a country to preach was one way of opening up your life a little bit um, within the parameters that you were allowed to. And in fact, you were kind of given a little bit of glory for doing those things. Like you were considered very self-sacrificing to give up your home and move to another country and use your life to try to convert other people in this new land. So that was uh, how I got to China. Is there any support offered from the, you know, from the church, mother church itself to missionaries or pioneers, any financial support, any training, any, any, like, what do they do? Just kind of, Hey, off you go. Or is there a support system? Well, there's kind of two tracks. And the first track is a very small like number of people get invited to go to this training school for missionaries called Gilead. And um, you have to be a married couple. There's a lot of qualifications and only a handful of people go each year. But of course, there's 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses and most of us never get to do that. But because all of us are trained and kind of programmed to use our lives for preaching, they also, you know, encourage everyone else to become missionaries of source. It's just that the difference is you're not supported. You don't have this formal training. You're not assigned to a country in the same way you would be if you were in that more small Gilead school class. So, you know, it's not to say you don't have any support. You definitely don't have any financial support. But you have support in the sense that there's, for example, when you go to Taiwan, there's a congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses there. So you immediately will meet people who are of your faith, who will help you find an apartment or, you know, it's a, it's a real uh, community uh, that you're a part of and you can go anywhere in the world almost and find people. And then in fact, even in Shanghai, when we went there, obviously religion is not free there other than a handful of sort of government sanctioned churches. So our work was illegal and done underground, but even so in Shanghai, there was a small group of people that met secretly. Um, really anywhere you go almost in the world, you could find people that were your brothers and sisters. Sure, because they truly do have, what, something like 7 million members in the Jehovah's yeah, Witnesses? 
and they're very organized. Like those congregations are, you could step into a congregation. I mean, it's, it's an amazing feat, but it also kind of tells you something that you could go to a different kingdom hall in another country and they would be studying the exact same material, you know, across the world that you had been studying that same week at home. It, it's very, um, it's a very unified group. Like every, everyone is very obedient to the leaders. Everything is done according to that organizational structure. And there's not a lot of room for dissent or, you know, creativity. You are expected to do things the way that it's handed down from above. Right, exactly. Which in a way is an extremely efficient system. You know, when everybody's yeah, on the so same page. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's you know, it's a matter of it's a matter of framing and perspective. I'm not yeah. singing their praises, but I am just pointing out. No, I'm saying that it, I agree with you that it yeah. it is highly effective if you can train people to listen to you. You know, you've got you've got a very well oiled machine, and and they do. Yeah, it exactly. Works. And that's it's, why they can accomplish what they do. Yeah. It, it, right. I wasn't offended at all by that. I was just agreeing. <laughs> no, no, sorry. I have to, not a problem. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's just so interesting because you can see the appeal. You can yeah. see why, you know, and you can see how they do get so much done. Because when everybody's on the same page, and they really are on the same page, you yeah. know, then it's, and that extremism of belief kind of, you know, kind of helps get you there and then activate, yeah. you know, the, the work you got to do. Definitely. You, I, I want to talk to you more about the China experience, but I have, I have I have something else I wanted to ask you about first because I thought that this was, um, you know, your experiences are fascinating, and I definitely want to talk about them. But I was so impressed by your TED talk. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and the reason why is because um, it focused mainly on the nature of belief and why people are so easily fooled, and I'm wondering. Was it a purposeful effort on your part after you came out of the JWs to learn about that stuff? Or what, what prompted you to take that approach in, in discussing cultic belief systems? I think for me, I've been out of the religion for 10 years or so now. And it, it was a slow transition from one phase to the next. So at the beginning, even when I first left, it's kind of fascinating to look back on now. Because when you're going through it, you have no idea where you're headed, you just know where you are and you know you aren't where you were and you don't really know how, where you're gonna get. <laughs> I know a little bit about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And who knows still yet, but at first I still, I left because there were a couple things that I realized were I couldn't morally agree with and stay in. But I had been raised in it and I was so indoctrinated that I still couldn't unravel everything. and. I still thought, oh, some of it has to be true because Jehovah's Witnesses have this amazing like structure of belief that everything builds on other things. It's all taken from the Bible, pulled out here, pulled out there. You know, if you believe in the Bible, um, which I did because I had been taught that that was the truth, and then you look at you know what they're pulling out, it's really hard to pick apart everything and just be like, ah, it's all fake. You really have to get to the bottom of it because so much of it makes sense up here. It's just that the foundation is flawed, you know, as you probably know. And so that was the first stage for me. And one thing that really helped me to finally realize that it, it wasn't truth was that I read in the New Yorker in 2009. So I left China in 2008 after leaving the religion. I stayed in China for about a year and I was like, 
what am I doing here? I no longer have a reason to be here. So I just moved to New York, which was insane, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, so anyway, 2009, I've been in New York maybe nine months or so. And I found, I had discovered this magazine, The New Yorker. Oh man, I loved it. I learned so much, you know, I was learning, I was like a sponge because I had been so cut off from the world. And one month they had this profile of Paul Haggis who had left Scientology. And of course, you know, as a Jehovah's Witness, we were always like, oh, Scientologists, they're the weird ones. Like, <laughs> And I'm sure that like Scientologists were saying the same about us. You bet we were, but we and were equal opportunity, here. man. Everybody fact, else but was crazy except us. Yeah. I know. And in fact, I was at it recently at that Mormon uh, Thrive conference, post-Mormon conference, and we were laughing about that and how I actually, they actually convinced me that Jehovah's Witnesses are like more extreme than Mormonism because they do more extreme shunning, the blood transfusion thing. But we, but we both agree that Scientology was. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the three of us are always kind of lumped together. It's really yep. funny, right? Yep. But anyways, there was this thing when I started to read that article and read his experience, I couldn't believe it because it was identical to what happened in my experience in that the way that the people, like the kind of like emotional manipulation that started to be used to try to keep you in, the fear mongering. And then ultimately he says at the end of the article, there's a quote from him where he says, I was in a cult my entire life and I couldn't see it. Everyone could see it but me. And... I realized reading that it was just, I realized it too. And, and I, I mean, I think that this word cult is so scary and, you know, people just throw it around, but this is what my Ted talk was kind of about in the sense that like, it's a continuum, but there's, you know, a certain, no one ever thinks they're in a cult ever. No one does. No one joins a cult, but there is like a, uh, this line that like are, that, you know, humans have a certain tendency towards group thing or like wanting to belong. But there is a point where it goes along that continuum and then turns into something harmful. So how I finally kind of came to that, I think that Scientology article was the first when I saw myself in people I considered to be cult members, you know. And then um, later I started to do research about brainwashing, mind control. And that was when I really saw more granular examples that Jehovah's Witnesses you know, although they're not as extreme as some, definitely bore the traits of a high control group. Um, and, you know, it's impossible to see when you're in it. You need some distance because you're too emotionally invested. You're too attached. Um, terminology is so loaded. You know, you've been taught that certain things are just, um, the meanings are too scary to contemplate. Uh, so it took some time. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, I think the problem for me became that I started to see cults everywhere. You know, when I first to New York, I, it's like, I can't even go to a yoga class. I feel like I'm in a cult. Like, you know, so it's like you, you kind of get oversensitized and then you have to try and find your equilibrium. But I think it's something that like, even if a yoga class isn't, isn't a cult, I think it's been really helpful for me just to um, have that sensor, sensor. Like I could, I can sort of feel when something feels like people are, um, you know, being too uh, tunnel vision or like in a silo. I think that I think that it's a good it's a good lesson to have learned essentially i agree completely and i and i totally get what you're saying about pendulum swinging and seeing it everywhere and then having to find a comfortable middle ground or common ground yeah. somehow because not everything is a cult by any stretch and certainly yeah. not everything is a destructive cult no. and uh and but you see 
as you learn about undue influence and, and authoritarian control systems and how we are made to think things, you start seeing lesser or lighter versions of that throughout advertising, propaganda, marketing. Yeah. And, you, and you see little lies, harmless lies that, that just are trying to get you to buy things. But they're annoying. And yeah. they're and they're and they build up, and you start. And for me, at least, I I still see this sort of you know this this influence peddling that goes on constantly yeah. around us. And I and I think to well, I think to earlier times in history when that wasn't as rampant, and we weren't as overexposed to media saturation as we are in our modern times. And I, yeah. I think that has a lot to do with the modern angst and the stress levels and stuff that goes on with us is that is it's a building effect, you know. So no, you know, somebody trying to sell you tissue paper or somebody trying to sell you a car or something, that's not, that's not mind control. But you add up, you know, hundreds, thousands of these things that we're being hit with every single day. And then I start getting a little worried about it a little bit, you know, but not, I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to sound extremist alarms. I've just, I think you just get it. like a radar for it and just having yeah. an awareness is a good thing. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to freak out about it, but just an awareness is always good. Exactly. And trying to, and trying to, for myself, it's been an, it's been an exercise in learning how to not, not ignore bad bad things uh, or bad actors, but also not overreact. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's important because I think it's easy to overreact, especially at the beginning when you leave. And I even think of that in the sense of how I was like, I just hate. I, I threw out like all religion. Like religion is a crock. You know, you you go to that side after being in a religion, but after some time, like I, what actually helped me was I've been going to university now, college, because I'm finally, you know, allowed. But I've been started taking religion classes, and it was almost like an epiphany to see that there was other ways of being religious that did not involve fundamentalism, and it it was really helpful for me. Like I'm still not religious, and I'm not interested in being religious, but I think it's. You know, you don't want to be extreme extremist on the other end either, because it's sometimes you have a bunch of other blind spots. And so I've slowly been able to come around to see like, oh, I can see, you know, why religion exists, how it can be a helpful force for people. And also I can see like that there's other ways of thinking about God that um, are not the ways that I was taught and, you know, are worth investigating because a lot of them are from different cultural traditions it's very rich um in human lessons and can be something that can add to your life just to learn about and see other perspectives so that's another thing that kind of happened along the course of the way where i i also kind of didn't like the pendulum kind of you know swung back a little where i was like okay you know like i get i can get it more not everything is my what my experience was when it comes to religion Exactly. We see that over and over again. And, and I have, um, well, I guess I feel not lucky, but fortunate to have made a decision early on that tolerance was more important to me and, and, and getting along with other people was more important to me than any one belief system. Yeah. 
And that was what I started preaching to my channel literally from day one of coming out of Scientology. It was one, Scientology is bad. It's destructive, cold, it's horrible. Don't go anywhere near it. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't want to go militant atheist. I didn't want to go, you know, firebrand atheism or extremism because that's just jumping from one cult to another in some ways, you know, or at least using cult mechanisms or these extremist ideas to push messages. And I don't think that's the way to go on any tack or front, you know, I, I just think, yeah, I think it's just that. like, I think it's fine if people are an atheist, but which to me what it is, is that if you ever get to the point where you think you have all of the answers, I just don't yeah. believe that we, ever, I don't think that that exists. And I, and if you become to that pole where you're like, no, no, I'm 100% right. There is no God or there is a God. I, I think that you're, you know, it's, it's too certain. I think that life is too uncertain to ever be that certain. And the smartest people in the world are the people who say that they've come to realize how little we actually know, you know? So that's kind of where I sit now. I'm like Thank comfortable you. in that. I, you have to get comfortable though, because it's not easy to not have all the answers, especially when you thought you did have all the answers. Cause that's a much more comfortable way to live. Has um, it been, hasn't that been the hardest part? Yes, it's really hard, and um, but I have actually come to enjoy it now because I think that that adds an element of sort of like a magical element to life. Like, you know, it's just this incredible gift, and I think I think it's almost more like now for me, it's it's nicer to not know everything because it, it leaves some space for some something magical that I can't understand right now. Maybe one day I will, maybe not, but. It helps me be more present, I guess, or something like just experience life for what it is. I could not agree with you more. And I've, I, I feel it's been a gradual process for me as well and a difficult one and a, and a, you know, a slow evolution. But, um, but opening, I am still not completely comfortable with not knowing all the things that I don't know compared yeah. to how I used to feel, like I was absolutely yeah. sure that I had the answers to everything. Um, I'm still not totally comfortable. Well, I think it's a human struggle. That's why we have philosophers. Like no one's, right. no one's like, oh, who cares? But it's like, I think the ability to not be tortured by it is a huge progress and also, I don't know, like, it's just having the, if you, like, if you didn't mind at all, you would never learn. Like, you know, it, it still keeps you curious. It keeps you, you know, engaged with the world. And I think that it's important as humans that we are not, I mean, I, I, when you have like ultimate peace of mind and, um, you know, sanity and calmness, I feel like, oh, maybe you should check if you're in a cult. <laughs> <laughs> As a, if you're like a human being who is not sort of like delusional, it's always going to be a little discomfort. It's part of life. I, I was just about to say, I, yeah, exactly. I was just about to, I was just thinking, if you're comfortable right now, there's probably something wrong. Yeah, I'm knowing. As a human. Like some people are just chill. I'm not one of them. I neither right. are. No, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. What? But of course, you know. But at the same time, we can all, you know, be chill and get along. And and I think that's the I, that's the thing I try to keep pushing out there is yeah. is like, look, we can disagree. We can agree to disagree. We can have these different ideas about things. But really, the best place to be is just wide open to almost anything 
yeah. not so open your brains leak out, like Carl Sagan says, but you know, <laughs> uh, open-minded enough that you don't have to get that feeling inside you when somebody starts saying something that you don't agree with. Yeah. That, and I think the, like the most important thing, I think one of the most detrimental things that religion has wrought on humanity is just this um, really plays on our judgmental nature and our tendency to other people. And to me, the biggest, you know, guideline is, you know, that I'm not judging other people. Like, it's not my place. Um, and I see, like, I, you know, on Twitter, when people comment on my <laughs> Twitter and such, like people that are arguing against, say, this idea that maybe we don't need, like, religion is not the only path and to salvation or life or happiness or morality. And almost every argument, like, almost leads with, like, judgmental, like, but not the gays, not the whatever, like, you know, the, you sinners, you apostates, you whatever. Like, there's always something where a person has got something that they're in opposition to. Uh, and that always strikes me as strange because that that's definitely a product of religion. And I do not think that's a product of if there is a God, of a God, you know? And I so, agree completely. And so, I yeah, can't, I, yeah, I, I can't imagine why a God figure would choose sides. I, I can't, I, I doesn't, you know, these are my people. These are not my people. These are the people that I'm going to back and support. And these are the people I want dead. I mean, this is God, the creator of everything. Yeah. Why would this guy care enough about one group of people and not another group? I mean, it's it's bizarre to me. It's a bizarre well, way of thinking. That's what humans care about. And I think right. you have to remember that religions <laughs> are a creation of human beings to make sense of their world. A lot of them are very ancient. And those kinds of that kinds of stuff, like the laws or the whatever, the requirements, they were things that worked in that era and were important in that era, perhaps, or that were just reflections of human beings in general. But because I think that they, even though the stories are old, I think that those knee-jerk feelings are pretty natural to humans to judge, to think of other people as, you know, not as good as us, or that makes us feel better about ourselves. And so I think it's really religion has got this hold that even though we have a lot of things that kind of show that it's not what we thought it was, we, it's still easy to sort of maintain that culturally. Really I agree completely. I think that the things that make us able to think as we call rationally or think things through in a logical sequence or progression are the same things that enable us to have extremism yeah, and, and have, tri you know, like we have tribalism because we can't have society without that. Yeah. Somehow this goes together up yeah. here in such a way that we can do that, that we have social urges and tendencies. But those same tendencies and urges also can drive us to the extreme. And I, I've, I worked for many years trying to figure out how do we undo the bad stuff and and I came to realize that, well, the bad stuff is just the opposite side of the coin of the good stuff. So you can't get rid of the yeah. bad stuff without the good stuff, getting, without getting rid of the good stuff, too. What, well, I don't know. What do you, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking a bit general here, but what do, you, what do you think about that? 
Well, it's funny because my, my grandmother, who I always found was very wise, um, she said to me once when I was quite a young woman, that the thing that you makes you fall in love with a person is the thing that will also drive you crazy in the end. And I have found that to be so true because it's the, as you say, it's the flip side of a good quality is also their fault to their annoying quality. And so I think that that is true. And they're, you know, trying to integrate that into your understanding of a person can, you know, help you to become a more accepting person and less judgmental person too. So maybe knowing what you, you know, if you apply that to religion too, like understanding that can sort of help you to look at this in a more holistic way rather than, you know, just like throw it all out. It's good for nothing or no, it's like the only thing that can save me. The truth is it's always somewhere in between in these matters usually. And that's where the truth lies. Agreed completely. All right. Let's talk about China again. I want to go back to China because I've, I've got questions. I've got so many okay. questions. I've never been to China. I've, I've only flown over it on my way to Australia. Um, I uh, have always been fascinated by it, though. And I have, uh, I even, there's a former Scientologist I've had on my podcast friend who uh, lives in China, loves China, is absolutely taken with it. I have problems because I like Chinese people. I like people of all you know, colors, races, religions, whatever. I really do. Uh, so I'm not I'm not down on the Chinese people, but I have a real problem with the authoritarian structures of Chinese government. And I, I tend to think about China in that way more. But I'm very interested in your experiences in China because you were an underground missionary. And, and I don't know that people really get the penalties that are potentially possible there in China for proselytizing a religion that that government doesn't agree with. Could you yeah. talk about that a bit and why it was that you yeah. felt you could take that on? Yeah, well, first of all, um, I think that like the impression of China is because when you don't know anyone on the ground, you know, your only impression is by this sort of like the structures of the power. Um, but of course, it's just like in a, in a religion that is authoritarian, the people on the ground are often like the nicest, you know, they're just subject to this system. And so it was really great, first of all, to um, learn the language uh, before going, because that makes a big difference because it's one thing to move to another country and many, many, especially young people in China can speak English, but to actually, I think, understand on a deeper level people, the culture and, like how people think it really helps to learn the language because even in learning Chinese I found that it started to make me almost have to rewire my brain in this way like to think a different way because the language the approach of the language is so different it's not like when you learn Spanish and uh, you can be like oh like, I mean I've never learned any Spanish and I can understand like 25% of what I hear if I have context because there's like overlap with Chinese, even the way that you would form a thought, even if I learned the entire Chinese dictionary and then I tried to say a sentence translating from English, they would just look at me like I was, was crazy. Um, so it's it's about learning how they think before you can even learn how to speak. <clears throat> so it helped going in knowing the language to a certain degree. And then getting there, I mean, China's a very intense place because there's so many people. And there's also a really terrible, quite recent history in terms of like the cultural revolution, like famine, like millions and millions of people were died under Mao because of Mao and his communist policies. And so there's a lot of trauma 
I think, underlying the surface in China that people don't really talk about. It didn't happen that long ago. And so um, that's, I think, sometimes why it, it feels really intense when you when you get there. But as I got, came to know people, it was it was such a um, mind blowing experience for me because uh, it there was something about like that how their culture is so ancient. Um, there's so much cultural wisdom in China that um, it was something that really forced me to confront my own beliefs because you know here I thought well. Joe's witnesses are only like 150 years old. It's almost embarrassing by comparison. But, you know, I felt like I had this whole like Christian tradition behind me. And then to like fully like come to a deeper understanding of a culture that is older than that um, and has philosophers and writings and culture that also teaches people to be moral and good and through entirely different sources. And, you know, it started to, it started to get to me, like it started to feel quite, make me question my own, I guess, foundation in the sense that I had always had this thought that, you know, we're right and I need to come here to your country and show you, like save your life and show you basically like the errors of your 5,000 years of human history, you know, it felt, it started to feel really arrogant. Um, and also just, you know, when you study Jehovah's Witness publications, they are very dumbed down. It's, the theology is not super complicated. Um, it's, you know, I, I don't want to be rude, but like most Jehovah's Witnesses don't have an education. And I think that includes the leadership. And I don't think that they um, have the breadth of knowledge to really um, be able to synthesize this religion into something that it like can, can, I don't know, that can reflect the complicatedness of human life. So John, I think uh, Lloyd Evans said that the leadership consists of the that, that people getting to the top, the elders are sort of the survival of the dumbest. Yeah, well, and also, I, I've also been told that in recent years, Joseph Witnesses has become more authoritarian and culty in the last 30 or so years. And a lot of that was because one of the leaders sort of had that authoritarian personality and he started to appoint the people, the, the men that um, were, you know, his people. And eventually that leader died and those others replaced him. And so the, you know, I think it's like many religions, it starts with good intentions, but then why is it that, you know, so often even in our politics, like people who end up wanting those p positions of leadership are so often like, kind of horrible people and it's because sometimes like those are the people that are power hungry that's that as far as i'm concerned that's the simplicity of it it actually is yeah. that simple after spending years looking at all this stuff yeah they're like magnet it's like a magnet i mean power is a magnet and, and it draws certain personality types and those yeah. i don't want that yeah. i don't you know you i don't yeah. think you're that yeah. kind of person but there is yeah. a type of personality that yeah. likes to dominate other people and that it is fine but eventually because yeah. they're going to be the ones that care enough to get there they're going to maneuver or do whatever it takes so i'm kind of babbling getting off topic of what I was <laughs> no, that's fine <laughs> that never happens on my show <laughs> but um just especially because looking back when you think about i don't know if you feel this way but when you see how utterly controlled you were by 
something and then you start to gain realizations of like who the people were that were controlling you and it's just like oh my god <laughs> like i gave over my authority to that like oh my goodness at least if it was like jesus you know you'd be like but he was like a really good guy <laughs> 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 I mean, I'm sure people are good people in some ways but like not they're not qualified for um holding utter control over people's lives like literally life and death when it comes to Joseph's if it comes to a blood transfusion issue but anyway the point being that being in China I think in some ways like maybe the fact that the government there was like this authoritarian government maybe on some subliminal level I I started to see the parallels I don't know like uh I think that an odd thing about China is that for a foreigner, even though there's this authoritarian government that is like severely authoritarian and doing all kinds of atrocious things to people and not respecting human rights, as a foreigner, of course, in this day and age in China, you have a certain amount of privilege that you will never really be in that much danger and you can get away with a lot. And so in some ways I had more freedom there than I had ever had in my life, because as long as you don't like criticize the government and as long as you don't challenge the government, like even as a preacher, I don't know if they knew what we were doing. We were careful. We didn't put things like on text or online. We did secret meetings. Um, but as long as I didn't like poke my finger in their eye, they're not going to stop you. And then if they do, find that you're doing it too openly, that was when people would get into trouble was because you're kind of like insubordination a little bit. But even the worst thing that would happen to you as a foreigner is that you would just get deported. They're not putting you into a gulag like they are with local Chinese people. However, you know, did I ever think about the fact that here I am trying to convert local people and then if they do in fact become Jehovah's Witnesses, well, that's the fate they will face if they get caught different for them you know but again there's just these blind spots that you have I think as a preacher I think this salvation complex is a really dangerous thing because you go in there thinking you have so many blind spots and you just think you're right no matter what happens and so I can see that now uh, as a real danger with that sort of dynamic um, but ultimately I feel it was China that kind of started to creak open my mind because it gave all of these things, being in this old culture, realizing like that my religion taught that if you weren't a Jehovah's Witness, you're going to be killed at Armageddon. Yet here were 1.3 billion people who didn't have the cultural background that they were ever going to be really hard for them to convert. It's just like such a different way of thinking. Uh, and so what, God was just going to not care about them. So it comes back to that thing, like where it, it just started to bug me because I was like, these people are really good people. <laughs> Who care about the things that we care about why would god sort of just write them off so it was like a big question that started to come to mind as a result of being in china interesting let me ask you a little bit more because i really want to grok this and i you mentioned thinking differently you're not the first person who i've talked to who knows foreign languages who says yeah. that you literally have to start thinking differently in order to when you when you start thinking in that language or speaking with someone in that language i'm what can you describe or tell us about the chinese language and how that changed your how your thinking has to change when you Hmm. speak it or approach it because you've you've mentioned it a couple times and i'm just fascinated by what what exactly switches you know gears in your is. head you know can you I describe it? it i mean chinese is really different in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of 
grammar. It doesn't have verb conjugation. It's amazing. Like some people think it's really hard and it is hard as far as writing and pronunciation, but as structurally, it's quite a simple language compared to English or Spanish with all these verb forms. It's not like that. I think because it's such an old language, you know, our current, our modern languages are obsessed with time and, and, and old languages didn't need to be that complicated. So a lot of Chinese is context. So I don't actually personally think it was something about Chinese that changed my mind. But I think what it is, is that when you are someone who is really indoctrinated and really believes something and you've been saying it your whole life and hearing it your whole life, when you suddenly start using a different language to teach it or to listen to it, because our meetings, many of them for many years that I went to were in Chinese, um, you just, it, it gives you a little bit of space and you can hear what you're saying in, 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 with new ears almost, or, you know, the things that you've been listening to your whole life are suddenly being processed with just like a step of remove. So I think that's part of it. But also I think a big part of it for me was that <clears throat> prior to moving to China, I had already been attending Jehovah's Witness meetings in Chinese, hundred percent Chinese for four to five years, three years in Taiwan, one to two years in Canada, which is really interesting because I never would have thought of this, but I think it was also something about having the break from the constant indoctrination because for three of those years or maybe four, I couldn't understand anything. So though I was still a firm believer, I wasn't getting this barrage like of information and you know propaganda in a way. And I, think, I was just thinking how in China was it? when I was there that they had like loudspeakers that would, or maybe that was in Malaysia. I also pioneered in Malaysia, but they would have loudspeakers that would like chant out like political slogans and stuff. And like, why, why would a government do that? It's like, obviously like hearing something kind of reinforces it. And so I do looking back now, think that there was something about just not listening to it all the time that might've started to make me think a little bit more just a break like because you're I don't know in Scientology but like Joseph's go to at that time like five meetings a week preaching all the other days even when you are in a gathering like a social gathering it's all Jehovah's Witnesses and you're sort of advised to keep your topic spiritual so you're often talking about like your experiences preaching or this type of thing so you never get a break from it and when you get a break maybe it just breaks the hold a little bit it most certainly does. And this is why constant repetition of message is so important, both in advertising at a lower level, but with extremist groups or high control groups. This is why Scientology has seven to eight international events every year, where David Miscavige comes out on the stage and gives these two, three-hour presentations. These are big multimedia music, dancing lights, dancing girls, et cetera, et cetera. These are these, convention. <laughs> yeah, no, they're 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 big productions and they're big stage productions and there's a lot of crafted and 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 cooked numbers and things thrown at Scientologists to give them the impression that Scientology is taking over literally taking over the world. Right. You know, and they'll get they'll even get people who are not Scientologists, government leaders, civic leaders, um, group leaders who they're trying to ally with or trying to move into those territories, and they will convince one or two or three of these leader types to give some quotes or give a little interview and praise oh. praise Scientology or praise one of its methods. And this shows how successful Scientology is and how we're taking over the world, right? So this is a constant thing, and I've learned that this is every every one of these 
groups, the high control groups, has to do this because the indoctrination yeah. does wear off. And this is one of the things that the academic apologists don't get about brainwashing is they don't understand that because their argument is, well, you know, if brainwashing was so effective, how come 100% of the people who walk in the door don't sign up? And you go, no, that's yeah. not that's not how it works. It's not about yeah. so the sign up. The sign up's got a whole other slew of sales technology connected with it. Yeah. It's the retention where the right. where the where the mind control really comes yeah, into play. Once you've already bought in. Right. Then you have to then then it's a matter of managing your cognitive dissonance. And I think it's like anything, it's like it's like a complex web because you know there's yeah. like fear and there's love and there's all kinds of things that work together. That's right. It's well it's like Alexandria Sines talks about it. it's it's love, it's terror, it's brainwashing, it's yeah. it's what you need to hear at that moment for where you're at. Yeah. They've got some message for you at all levels of emotional yeah. manipulation. You know what I mean? So they can love bomb you. Yeah. Or they can give you a severe reality adjustment. Yeah. Turn your head, you know, and and threaten your family, let's say, right? And then yeah. it's And it's interesting because I've noticed that I've talked to different people who when I was when like since I've left the witnesses and it's it's different for everyone what keeps them in. Like a lot, depending on your own nature. And for me, I, I came in as a child. My parents had become inactive, even though I was third generation witness. And so we weren't going to all the meetings, but then I would, they would take me sporadically and my grandmother would take me sporadically to the meetings. And I would, I was, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, once in a while hearing this message that if you don't do these things, if you don't come to these meetings and get baptized, you're going to die. And my family was, you know, I had, my dad was an alcoholic and I think I had a lot of, you know, anxiety and that just gave me the salve. It was like, oh, okay, if I do this, then I'll be safe. And so even as I got older, of course, you know, I, I, I wasn't like in the same headspace, obviously, as an older person. But like, I remember really clearly when I started to realize it wasn't true the one thing that kind of kept me going for a long time was the fear that I didn't want to die at Armageddon or the fear of like losing all of this. And so other people though have told me like, oh, well, it was like the community that they loved or different things, right? As you say, the love bombing and different things do it for everybody and they've got it all. <laughs> that's right. Good times, man. The, well, mm -hmm. the, that's the thing about these groups is the successful ones, the ones that go mainstream or yeah. the ones that, that keep going. And Scientology is mm -hmm. trying so desperately to get to this place because they're still relatively young in this, this yeah. whole thing and they could die off. Yeah. You know, if David Miscavige disappears tomorrow, Scientology could be over or yeah. somebody could step up and take over. But they, they want to have a full toolkit. Yeah. You know, no matter what situation presents itself, no matter what level of cognitive dissonance the member is experiencing, yeah. they have the right tool to to manage that dissonance and and chill the guy out and keep him going. Whether it's the whether it's at one end of the spectrum or the other, that the specifics of the tool don't matter. Keeping the person in the headspace is what matters, yeah. and whatever it's going to take to do that is is completely justifiable as far as yeah. they're concerned. So, yeah. all right. Well, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I want to, I want to ask you more about China again, because I'm fascinated and I can't get enough. And someday I'll 
got to get over there at some point. But okay, so you speak Mandarin. You spent years in China and Taiwan. And so what would you say culturally, and talking about cultural differences, you are, are thoroughly indoctr- you know, indoctrinated, you're familiar with all of this. What do you see in terms of differences between the East and the West? And specifically, what differences do you see that would affect individuals' susceptibility to falling into authoritarian thinking or an extremist group? Hmm. Do you, have well, you ever thought about East versus West that way? I, I mean, I write about this in my book a little bit about how um, it was really interesting that when I went to China, it was almost as if anything that was intuitive to me to be done a certain way from like the very mundane things to more complicated things. Uh, in China, they did it the opposite. So I use the example of addressing a letter, like as simple as that. Anything I thought I could just, okay, well, this I can do. Oh, no, no, we start with the name, but they start with the country opposite. Um, there were so many things like that, or just, I mean, cultural um, manners, different things. Um, you know, we think it's more polite to be quiet when we eat. Chinese people think being loud is showing that you like the food. Um, I mean, I could think of a million examples. Uh, so that was part of what I think disoriented me. But as to, uh, you know, they also have, I mean, part of what is that, that is rooted in is like this individualistic culture versus a collective culture. And um, I think that we're both as susceptible, but as you say, I think it will be different things. Like I think when I think of the narratives of Jehovah's Witnesses or like cult narratives, it's sort of like, you're led to believe you have a certain like, you're the protagonist or like you have a certain agency and you're like this hero going to save people. I don't know, like maybe that's what does it for you in that kind of a culture, uh, maybe a more collectivist culture. Um, there's a feeling of obligation to um, the teacher or to you know those around you. I, I remember really clearly actually, which is a perfect example. I mentioned that I also pioneered in Malaysia for a year and a half or so. And I remember, um, when I wrote my first article that was considered an, apart, an apostate article, um, I think it was very shocking to people who knew I had left the religion, but to come out as an openly and say that you don't believe in the religion as a Jehovah's Witness is just like terrifying and horrifying and betrayal and you are now worse than the devil. You, it's, the, it's worse than being like a child molester. It's the one sin that God won't forgive. So when I came up with that article, I guess it probably some people that I knew, even though they're not allowed to read it, did read it. And I remember I got this anonymous email from, it was funny because the person obviously was using like a burner email address and they, they wrote me and they're like, like they had found the article and they said something to the effect of like, how could you do this? Like blah, blah, blah. And I wrote back and I was like, who is this? Because I was I can't help it. I'm kind of like curious and playing with them a little. <laughs> and they just again wrote me back and didn't tell me who they were, but I could tell from the sort of like the English patterns because Malaysian English has a certain, um, like a certain um, sentence structure in some ways. It's a little different than North American English or whatever. And I, I was like, oh, I can tell this is somebody from Malaysia that I used to know. And then I started to think in my mind, like, who could it be? And just like the way that he was talking, I was like, oh, I know who it is. It's this one Jehovah's Witness elder that was in my congregation in Malaysia. I was, I'm positive it was him after I did engage in a few emails back and forth. And then he said to me, 
because he was a person who did a lot for foreign missionaries who came. And he was, he was so generous. He was quite well off and he was very supportive, a wonderful man. But he said to me, how could you do this after people did so much for you? Like, how could you leave and do this, betray us in this way? And I was like, oh, that's so funny because it's such a collectivist kind of cultural statement in the sense that no one who was like a Western witness would be like getting mad for that reason. But in his mind, part of your obligation to stay was that so many people had invested in you, which was true because we all believed in this message we were giving. But I thought that was a good example in the sense like different things will keep people in. That's a great example, because you're talking there about cultural obligation or social obligation as a driving force, a motivating force for a person to individually have a religion, have a job, raise a family, whatever the the thing is. And that's that's a yeah, that's interesting, because, yeah, not a lot of Americans are are particular. I mean, we all have this sort of uh, nationalism. But it's an it, but it's interesting because it's not a it's it, even that is is more based in individuality and and individual exceptionalism than it is based in a collective yeah. view in many many ways. It's, it, this is why I'm fascinated by the East versus West. And once yeah. I became aware of just how radically different, and it was my friend in China who actually first started enlightening yeah. me to this point of view that, hey man, you really got to understand that people aren't the same everywhere. Chinese people, Indian people specifically, for example, or or Asian, you know, the Asian population in general, if you're going to take talk in really broad generalities, yeah. approach the world from a very, very different point of view, this collectivist point of view, or what I would, what I call society first kind of point of yeah. view versus the individual first. And I thought this might have a great deal to do with what motivates them to join these groups because it's not like Scientology isn't thriving in Taiwan right now it's as far as I know going gangbusters there and so so well, are yeah. these other groups and I think what happens is it's like the conversion rate for China is I don't think extremely high but it's there's people definitely converting to become witnesses there for sure um and as historically Japan has a lot of Joe's witnesses Korean like back when the missionaries went there people did convert um, but I think what must happen is because Chinese people are so there's so much obligation to the family and especially when there's a lot of only children like can you imagine the only child says to the parent in China I'm not going to university or like I'm not going to get a career I'm just going to do this preaching thing like that's not the way the society is structured and so I think what has what has to happen almost is that there has to be a shift where you you know you still are a collectivist culture but you shift that to the religion, to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and perhaps, you know, consider that your family now um, and who you're obliged to please or work for or whatever. So I'm yeah, sure I would. I was also thinking maybe as a missionary, I might try to go for the whole family close. Yeah, get them all at once. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I. I I say that in whole in complete ignorance of of how I would go about doing that in yeah, China, I mean, of course. China but. is that yeah, China is kind of special in the sense that I think it's mostly young people who are open and interested, and so mm. they're always going to probably be the, be the first people that you will get to list like study with you, um, just because they're curious and um, you know they the world is kind of opening up to them in a way that it didn't for their parents in China. 
I did study with some older people in China. <clears throat> there was one example in my book of a couple, a couple older ladies that I studied with. Um, and I think for them, it was just bizarre. Like <laughs> they were just like totally humoring me. They were just like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but also I think because they were Shanghainese, I think my Chinese was hard for them because even Mandarin wasn't their first tongue. Shanghainese was, and they were, uh, so, you know, we had a few barriers, which might've made what I was saying sound even more insane than it actually <laughs> was. Because, <laughs> you know, wow. in Chinese, you say the word the wrong pronunciation, and it means something, if you use the wrong tone, it's a totally different word. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Um, what do you think has been your... At least as at least as we sit here now in this time and place as we're talking right now, because I know this sort of thing changes over time as our perspectives yeah. change. But what do you think is the is the is the biggest or the best takeaway you've had from your JW experience as you're living your life now? Like biggest takeaway in the sense of something positive or just anything at all? Well, I mean, whether it's positive or negative, I'm actually not. I I'm I'm oh. not sure. I mean, some people walk away from these things and. You know, all religion sucks forever and can never be good. Yeah. And anybody believing anything is just a moron. You know, there's the cynical takeaway. There's an yeah. optimistic takeaway. I think you and I are more in that side of the spectrum yeah. than we are on the pessimistic side. Um, but I'm just curious for you individually. You know, it doesn't have to be, a, you know, some huge, amazing life lesson. I was just kind of curious where, what, what yeah. you know, in your day to day. I mean, I think the biggest thing it's taught me is to never, ever, to be wary of feeling so certain, um, which I think has, is important as a human being to not get overconfident about being right. Um, but, you know, like as far as, it's like some people are like, oh, but did you gain something? You must have gained something from it because it was, there was, some, you know, people were so loving or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, they rob you of your life. Like, I do feel that, my literal like intellect was taken from me or I guess I submitted, but you know, when you start as a child, I do think of it as being taken from you. And then opportunities, like I loved school. I was always a good student and teachers were always like, what, you're not going to go to college. Are you crazy? And you know, it's just so in the mental framework that I was in that I just didn't even consider it. So like, I, I think it's important when we leave these groups is like, even if you are a positive person, you have to mourn what was lost. Like you, it's going to be hard to really heal from it if you don't acknowledge what it took from you. And I think it did take a lot. I think it takes a lot from all of us um, to have our lives hijacked by something that's not true. But, you know, you can't sit in that spot. So I've also learned how to like integrate something like that, like something that's kind of like an enormous grief or loss, but integrate it into the present and not make it something that you're bitter about, but make it something that you know, you can use and sort of, you know, um, use it in a way that will benefit you now or benefit others. Um, it's important to, I think, like, keep it as part of your life narrative rather than just have the temptation to just be like, I don't even want to think about it again. So angry. Um, I still get angry sometimes, but um, I'm also, you know, I wouldn't have had the weirdest life ever if I had not been <laughs> Jehovah's Witness because it's been really weird. I mean, I'm not even that old yet. And sometimes I think like, Jesus, there was like that whole era 
in Shanghai. <laughs> and then I'm like, and then there was that whole era in Malaysia. And then there was like, I came to New York. And then I wrote this book. And then I was on the Daily Show. Like, what? <laughs> so uh, for a person who likes adventure, it, I feel like I can think of it in that way too and be like, well, it's been an adventure. <laughs> I'll say, I, I totally understand. <laughs> um, any regrets? Anything you look back on and you, I mean, is it is it a regretful thing or do you look back on it and go, well, I wouldn't be where I'm at now and so. No, no, I'm a major regretter. I, it's like okay. a curse. I, I, I like, um, I ruminate about everything I should have done differently. I, I actually think that that's a real um, challenge for me because it's a real joy sucker and it also keeps you from being present in your life. So. To me, what because I'm a person that has that tendency, I've really tried to just cultivate gratitude because I, it is the only cure for that. And you need to cure it if you want to appreciate this life that you have that's left, you know, that you didn't, you keep ruminating about it, you're gonna just be giving more years to that cult or whatever. So um, yeah, I try, I try to just practice gratitude because you, you will find it's the one thing that can erase regret. It's the only thing, actually. That's a great point. Like me. I, I'm a major, like, um, break myself over the coals kind of person. And I really am working on not doing that. Excellent. That, yeah. Um, well, where are you at now? And what are your plans for the future? I mean, you're going to continue activism. Do you have another idea of where this crazy adventure of your life is going what are what are your what are you thinking it's funny because i think part of my problem of having left the religion already in my like early 30s was that i have so many interests and i want to explore so many things but um the world kind of rewards you better when you stick to one thing especially career-wise or even just to get a job like activism done, you know, sticking to it for the long term was going to be more helpful. So I, you know, I've done different things that I felt very passionate about. Um, at this point, I, I've been doing writing now and editing like for a number of years. So I, I'm going to write another book. I think it seems like my editor is interested in my next book idea. Um, but until it's for sure, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna pretend it's for sure. <laughs> um, and I uh, just have a couple writing projects that I'm working on. And as far as being an activist, like, it's interesting because I, I definitely think of myself as like a shit disturber. Like, I don't hold back from saying what I think um, if I think that it's important to say. Um, but. There's a strange thing for me, which is when I wrote this book, I had spent so many years like rebuilding a life and a life that was my own, that when I wrote this book, it was really a strange feeling when it came out because it was as if I had suddenly like re-entered that world that was already 10, 11 years behind me. And it, it was strange because I didn't, I don't feel anymore like I am a member of that world. And so I feel like I've changed so much that a couple people said to me like, oh, you should start a YouTube channel. Like you should like do more on this. And you would be, especially because there's not that many women that are doing this in the ex-Jogos community. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, maybe I should. Cause I like helping people. But I was like, you know what? I don't even think I 
know what to say anymore. Like, I want to help people. And a lot of people write me individual letters and I try to help as much as I can. Um, but I, I don't want to use my life in sort of a way where I'm still kind of half living in that world. Because I think the problem is I just like, I like the real world too much. So I just want to do more stuff that is, I want my world to go like, um, I just like want to expand as far in the other direction sort of, and it becomes, it's become smaller and smaller to me as I've done that. And so I just, you know, you lose, I lose, I've lost the passion to kind of keep talking about it much more, which is weird. I know, but, um, oh, no, I, that's not weird. I, yeah, I, feel like I, I, feel like I get it. Bad. Yeah. Cause like, it's like, I do want to help you, but I feel like I have something to offer the world that maybe is like going beyond that. Like I can take that and like exponentially kind of like broaden it, you know, in the sense that like, even, you know, you had an experience, but here are you broaden it with other group, you know, just like in my TED talk, I don't know, like I'm interested in talking more about the mechanisms than the group at this point. So my next book is definitely related to cults or culty thinking and this type of stuff, but it's not related to my own personal experience in one. So yeah, I might go get a master's. I don't know. It's still, I feel like I'm literally like a 20 year old still trying to figure out what to do with my life. <laughs> Cause I never really had that time, you know? So I'm still there, but you know, it's hard. It's, um, it's enjoyable with everything that's happening right now has been wonderful. And I got to meet so many people and broadened the horizons of that experience I had so much. So I feel really lucky. Well, and, and in many ways you are. And, uh, and at the same time, your intelligence and your optimism and, and just general, you know, wanting to help people. I think like so many of us who are in this ex-cult community, who are speaking out, who are trying to help other people, I mean, we are all motivated by that. Those are the same motivations that got us, you know, that we developed in the group that were the positive side of it, that sure. kept us going, you know, because if yeah. it was all bad, well, then it would be an all bad and there wouldn't have, and yeah. we wouldn't have stayed with it for as long as we did. It's you know? point, yeah. Yeah, even, point, yeah. Yeah, it trains you to kind of not be live a narcissistic life in a way, which seems funny because in a way it seems like it seems so narcissistic to go there and like be like convert to my religion. But there is something about that service, like a life of service that I think is really important for humans. And that's why people join religions too, because it does fill a need and it makes you feel good about yourself. Exactly. I mean, but well, yeah, if you, yeah. if you can join up with, you know, uh, another person for a while in this, you know, river of life and you kind of come along and, boost them up a little bit as they go along their journey yeah. that a great feeling. yeah it's a wonderful feeling and whether scientology is the medium or jehovah's witnesses or science or yeah. whatever it doesn't change how great it feels when you help somebody yeah it's a great motivator and it's a really beautiful thing about human beings that's why we've survived this long hopefully we'll survive longer <laughs> exactly not to exactly. be apocalyptic or anything but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I can't help but go there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll see. We'll have to see what happens, you know? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice to talk to you. Yeah, I. me too. I have, uh, I don't think I've expressed it anywhere near as well as I, as I feel I'm capable of doing, but I feel so akin to you and some and, and the things you have been talking about and saying and your experiences have been so parallel with so many of mine it's such a that is a wonderful thing about meeting other people who have been through that experience and especially when it's with a different religion because it just makes you feel like if we all independently 
came to these certain thing like conclusions mental like frameworks after going through experience like through different religions there must be some truth to what we're experiencing now i think like in the sense of you know where we where we land and i did find that a lot with the ex-mormons the triangulation just so you know <laughs> the triangle is complete complete because <laughs> i was like sitting listening to the talks thinking oh my gosh you would just swap out a few terminologies and this could be my own experience having left and so that's if anything else i said to someone there i was like it's really funny it's very faith strengthening actually <laughs> in the sense that like you feel like oh i made the right decision now i realize i have faith that i made the right decision and that's like it's nice i mean like it's, it's a real supportive nice feeling to have <laughs> big time big time yeah. Well, again, thank you very much for taking the time. I very well easily could reach out to you again in the future to do more about this stuff. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, uh, thanks again. And um, how do people, by the way, find your book? Is it in the bookstores or is it Amazon yeah, or where do they? Amazon and TV. There's a, also an audio book on, um, which we call it Audible. So yeah, it's, if you use them on Amazon, it's there or um, any bookstore should. The bigger bookstores probably have it now. Um, indie books, different ones ordered it or didn't. Um, but yeah, and I'm online just under my name. I'm the only Amber Scora, so I'm easy to find. <laughs> yes, you do have that uh, unique name. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Yeah. Well, we will be posting this, and I will let Amber know when it goes up. So if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please leave it in the comments section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And perhaps Amber will see some of those comments and reply to them yeah. on my channel. Oh, I love doing that. Love doing that. <laughs> Always invite my guests to do that. Thank you. And, uh, and folks, thanks for coming around and listening to us gab on at a mad rate for an hour here. We definitely had a good time talking about this stuff. I hope you had a good time listening. I will see you guys again next week. Bye-bye.